If you're happy with the same old ways of dating, if you enjoy sucking at communication, and you have no desire to improve your romantic life, then our podcast might not be for you. But if you want some out-of-the-box ideas to deepen your current relationships, broaden your sexual horizons, develop a better understanding of yourself, or learn more about non-monogamy, then you've come to the right place. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. And this is the Multiamory Podcast. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we're talking about cognitive biases and how they affect your relationships. We'll be talking about the fundamentals of biased thinking, some common ways that it can show up in relationships, and how to get around them in order to have happier, healthier connections to your partners and to yourself. Can I just say this topic is so left-brained and so Vulcan, and I love it so much, except (laughs) I'm Vulcan, I don't get excited, so... Hmm, yeah. That would make sense that you created this already painted myself into a corner. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Why don't you start us off then by telling us what is cognitive bias? Yeah, what is a cognitive bias indeed? It's really a fascinating subject. So, So basically, a cognitive bias is a mistake in reasoning, in evaluating, in remembering, or in any other process that your brain takes part in. Um which often happens as the result of hanging on to a preference or hanging on to your beliefs, regardless of information to the contrary. Yeah, and our biases can affect things like our memory or our reasoning or our decision-making. And also our unconscious biases are often so strong that they lead us to act in ways that are inconsistent with reason, as well as our values and beliefs. And that's a really interesting and kind of scary thought. Well... (laughs) Yeah, it's basically, it's kind of like this idea that we all come with these little filters kind of baked into our brains or that develop over the course of our lives that literally change the way that we perceive the world or the way that we interpret information from the world. It's like our biases are kind of like this fundamental part of how our brain functions to a certain extent. And is that nature or nurture? That is the age-old question, isn't it? Indeed. Yeah, We we kind of get into that later on. Yeah, we are going to get into that a little bit. I I think, though, that to start off, I mean, it's definitely our biases are something that we learn through our life based on our experience, which we're going to talk about later based on your gender or your socioeconomic class or what types of experiences you've had or what your family is like or what religion you were raised with, right? Like, there's a lot of different things that you're not born with those things, or at least not with most of those, but you learn them from you know, living your life as the person you are and in the culture that you are. Um, Whether there are some that are, you know, we're more inclined to or something, that's a little bit harder to say and something that scientists love to argue about. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Speaking of scientists, uh, one of the, one of the common forms of bias is called confirmation bias. And that's something that we've talked about before on this. And I wrote a blog post about it a couple years ago. But essentially what that means is it's the tendency for our brain to find evidence to support a conclusion that we already believe, rather than looking at the evidence in a sort of neutral way and then trying to draw a conclusion from that. 
So this happens a lot in research. This is something that uh, in the book Sucks at Dawn, they talk about how there have been, like as one example, there were studies that the conclusion of the studies said that there were no matriarchal societies in the world. Uh, and then people later came along and looked at those same studies and were like, wait a minute, you've just defined a number of these, or like you've just shown a number of civilizations around the world that would fit the definition of matriarchy. But the reason why the original researchers hadn't come to that conclusion is because they assumed that a matriarchy had to be like, had to involve the oppression of men, that it had mm. to be the opposite of the type of culture that we have now. Uh, and so things like that, that it's just, they weren't literally were not even able to see the fact that the evidence was saying something different because they went into it with assumptions about the way people work and about what a society would look like, things like that. Um, the opposite of the type of culture we have now, don't we still live in a or in an oppressive patriarchal culture? Yeah, they're saying yeah. that if they're look that the researchers were looking for matriarchal cultures, but assuming okay. that matriarchy must mean also oppressing men rather yeah. than an oh, emphasis on women holding power or property or inheritance rights or whatever. Okay. So that it's only one or the other. Somebody has to be oppressed in order for a culture to basically, occur. even right. though there are a number of cultures around the world where women hold things like inheritance rights or mm -hmm. or they're the ones who own property. Or, yeah. In or your your family like line is tracked through is tracked you know matrilineally mm -hmm. that's a word <laughs> 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 yes but i get the point okay i see what you mean now thank yeah. you yeah so uh there's this is a, a really um interesting example of this that actually came up recently um well, i guess recently gosh it was a couple years ago there was um, a, a small study that was published in a journal about men and masculinity. And basically what the study showed was that it did surveys of a small sample of men and found that compared to previous generations that men, you know, college age men were much more comfortable with having very close emotionally connected relationships, like non-sexual relationships with their male peers, with their friends or the bromance as the researchers called it. Uh, and that because of this, they leaned on those relationships for support getting through hard times rather than just relying on their romantic female partners for these things. What's interesting about this is I read about this first uh, because it came up as a headline in my newsfeed from The Telegraph. And the Telegraph, the headline was something along the lines of the rise of bromance is, you know, destroying heterosexual relationships. Right. And it's I like, remember this. No, this did come up pretty recently. This was like within the last year or so that that yeah, came the, up. The study came out in 2016, but that article was in 2017. Right. So it was just during this last year. Uh, and then meanwhile, uh, in Time magazine, they also, or I guess the Time website, probably not an actual magazine, uh, but it came up as exact same study, exact same information, but just talking about how they found this was very beneficial to men, especially in getting through trauma and hard times in their life because they found they were able to uh, share more honestly and get and perceived less judgment from their male friends than from their romantic partners. And so this is just an example, rather than going into that study, but just how two people could take the same set of data and come to very different conclusions, not opposite necessarily, but very different 
you know, meanings that they put onto it uh, and the different pieces of that data that they're going to look at. Yeah, and it's really important to note that um, as we go on further in this discussion, there are like a million different biases out there. Um, and it's really difficult to avoid them. That's probably not going to be something that you're going to ever completely do. Mm-hmm. But it's at least important to think about them and to say like, hey, I have this or what are those, you know, cognitive biases that I do continually kind of go to? And then how can I like change my thinking based off of what I know about myself regarding these? Yeah, that's the thing is when I started digging into this and actually, honestly, anytime I've ever started digging into learning about cognitive biases, it really makes you start to question reality. I know for me, I'm just like, oh my God, I have no idea what reality is. What is my worldview? What is it that I actually believe or don't believe? I don't even know what's real. Oh my God. Um, Because like I said at the beginning, like cognitive biases, they're there at this really fundamental level in the way that we process the world. And they're not necessarily by default a bad thing, but it is good just to be able to be aware of it. Um, of course, like I always want to go really deep with it. If you start <laughs> to think about, if you really start to think about it, like you never directly experience reality, like your sensory organs, like your eyes, your skin, your ears, they feed information to your brain and then your brain interprets it for you. And so always essentially your sense of reality is just an interpretation that is sometimes imperfect. Um, which is nutso. Like, it's nutso to think about. Like, and I think that's, and, and the thing is also your brain, like I just said, like doesn't always spit out that information back to you in a perfect way, uh, in a way that actually reflects what reality is. That's why um, uh, in court cases, eyewitnesses can actually be very unreliable because you can have three different eyewitnesses who saw very different things, all of whom are convinced that they saw what actually really happened. Um, when in reality, it's like if it's something traumatic or things happen very quickly or a long amount of time has passed by, like that's just more time for the brain to kind of chew on all that information and try to come up with an interpretation that's going to be different from somebody else's. Um, and so, I mean, I don't know. That just starts to make me dizzy when I start to think about it too much. <laughs> well, yeah, if, I think rather than maybe zooming way out like that and looking at it as this, oh God, nothing's real. Everything's in the head. We're in, in, our, in the matrix kind of a thing. Uh, if we want to just be really practical about it too, you could even just think about something as simple as our vision, that our eyes are essentially the equivalent of like maybe an eight megapixel camera in the middle, which if you know anything about megapixels in cameras, that's like the digital, the first digital camera that, you know, my brother got 15 years ago or something, <laughs> right? Like this is not a good camera. Uh, and what our eyes are doing, like we perceive the world as a very sharp detailed thing, but really it's that our eyes are looking around, picking out details, and then our brain is constructing this and then retaining mm. it as one image, even though we're only seeing small parts of it at one time in any amount of detail, which is exactly how magic works, right? This is how magicians do cool shit. Is so because we're magic? We allow magic to happen. We allow your own magic in life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Is that really what you're trying to say? With your cognitive biases. <laughs> With your cognitive yeah. biases and your imperfect vision. Exactly. But not to despair, because aside from this allowing magicians to wow and amaze us, uh, by recognizing this, we can find ways 
in which we distort reality. We can find ways that others do that, and it can help us to bridge these gaps in our communication. And it can help us to make better choices about how we react and can allow us to be better at understanding other people. So rather than thinking of this as, oh God, this is a problem I need to overcome, because as Dedeker was pointing out, that's literally not possible because we don't perceive reality absolutely and perfectly. Uh, but rather than thinking of it that way, it's this, by understanding you have those limitations, you can do things to become better at it. My favorite example of that is, because uh, people get upset about stuff like this sometimes, being like, no, like I'm, I can understand things perfectly. They don't like the idea that anything is out of their control. Mm. And I always like to say, cool, but like gravity is a thing that's real and is a limitation on you. And people have tried to, you know, will themselves to fly and that doesn't work. <laughs> but once people understood gravity, they could use those principles that they understood to then create airplanes and create hot air balloons and you know that we were able to overcome that limitation once we actually understood it rather than just trying to bury our heads in the sand and pretend that it doesn't exist or we can just overcome it with willpower hmm that's a good one thanks that's a good one <laughs> yeah yeah so well because we that is also <laughs> we willed ourselves to fly yeah yes uh, <laughs> with a lot of hard work no, that because that is in itself actually a bias is that we always think that we're the most objective person in the room generally, mm-hmm. that we tend to overestimate how objective or how neutral we can be. Um, but that's interesting. Usually like way that overestimate. Yeah. 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 Uh, but I like that metaphor a lot. Yeah. But for this episode, I, uh, as Emily said, there's a billion cognitive biases and you know, also kind of loosely related to logical fallacies. There's just like so many of them that obviously we couldn't cover all of them in an episode. I picked out five that I feel come up really commonly in relationships, both that I've experienced in my own relationships, in friends' relationships, in the relationships of my clients, um, so that you can maybe start to have a little bit of awareness of what's going on in your brain, you know, maybe what's even going on in your brain or your partner's brain when you're having a communication breakdown. And with that awareness, finding a way to be able to work around it and to be able to communicate and connect and in a much more effective way. Yeah. So the first one we're going to talk about is the empathy gap, um, which is where happy people, no, sorry, not happy people, just people, <laughs> just, just human beings. It could happy be happy or people. Unhappy. Uh, but in one state of mind, fail to understand people in another state of mind. So if you're happy, you can't imagine why people would be unhappy. But when uh, you're like sexually aroused, you can't really understand how you act when you're sexually aroused. So if you're not sexually aroused, you can't understand how you act when you are sexually aroused. So it's kind of that idea of like, say I'm in a fight with Jace and I'm like super upset and he's very calm in the moment. I'm like, how are you calm right now? What the hell is happening? Like, why are you having these emotions and I am having separate ones? Like, it's my inability to empathize with him in the moment or vice versa. And on the other side of that is the just like, I'm sure people, this line might be activating for some people, but the, why can't you just be rational about this is the Mm. other side of that because you're feeling detached from something and you can't imagine how anyone else could feel anything besides that same thing. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, that's a big one. Um, and just to clarify really quickly, in last week's episode, we talked about the difference between empathy and sympathy 
And in this case, when we're talking about empathy, it involves not just you having directly had the experience that your partner has had, but also the ability to put yourself in someone else's shoes and your ability to try to imagine uh, what it is that they're feeling and what that might be feeling like. Um, so again, it's kind of in this in-between space where it's not quite sympathy, where it's just like, oh, I see you're having a hard time and I feel really bad for you, but it's actively trying to kind of put on and understand what it is that your partner's feeling and how that would feel to you if you're in the same situation, something like that. Yeah, or at least to attempt to, or to imagine what it might be like in their situation, since we can't actually understand completely what another person's feeling at any time. But it's like in this case it's the the difference is that empathy is you're at least trying to understand what it might feel like to that person rather than just seeing them feeling what they're feeling yeah and i think overall i mean maybe i'm just going to speak for myself here but i think like we're not particularly great at that overall like sometimes just as humans humans aren't like amazing at imagining how other people would respond to things um because we just assume that they're going to respond in the same way that we would um, and it can present as like a projection. So we take our own emotional or mental state and then we project it onto the other person. I definitely have done this in a lot of my relationships. Um, it also, it, it it's, it's, it's so frustrating in the moment because you sit there like feeling as though you're going to get a reaction from a, from a person and then they astound you when they give you something other than what you expected. And it's simply because... Maybe in that moment, you can't empathize with what they're going through. So you are therefore surprised at what you get in that moment. Mm, yeah, yeah, definitely. And I mean, this can show up in relationships in so many different ways. Um, projection is just one of them. Um, one that I know has come up in my relationships a lot is, uh, you know, times where I've found myself changing my behavior because I assume that my partner would respond the same way that I would if the tables were turned. And that's a little bit of a weird, confusing turn of phrase, but to give an actual <laughs> example, it'd be something like, for most of the time that I've been polyamorous, like, uh, and honestly, just in my life in general, it's not just with my partners, like, uh, I tend to avoid talking about more specific sexual details of what I did with a partner to another partner. And that started in as a habit, not because I ever went to my partner and asked, like, do you want to hear this? Do you not want to hear this? You know, um, it started because I made the assumption like, well, that would kind of make me uncomfortable. So I'm just going to assume that it would make them uncomfortable, too. So I'm just going to avoid talking about it. Um, and operating with that as a bias to a certain extent, like, sure, in some relationships, that ends up being true and that ends up being okay. But then in some, it doesn't end up being okay because I've kind of made an assumption about how a person thinks and feels just based on what it is that I think and feel. Um, right. I think what I've seen happen a lot is also a sense of like, well, I feel really happy and fulfilled in my relationship with my partner. So I have a really hard time empathizing and understanding how, for instance, my metamor could be complaining or feeling left out or feeling hurt. Like I see that a lot, like especially like a partner who's maybe getting more time or more affection or more of something from one partner has a really hard time understanding if their metamor is feeling like they're not getting enough. And that can definitely cause like a lot of tension or dissension or arguments or fallout in that particular scenario. I feel like I also see this one come up in a place where 
Say you don't see a partner terribly often, but that's okay for you and you're perfectly happy with it. And then you have a metamor, right? Your partner has another partner who sees them much more than you do, but they're upset about not seeing them enough. And you're just like, mm. I don't, how could that possibly be? What a jerk. They must be being selfish. They must, you know, right? We, cause we think they must feel the same way I do. And if I'm happy with what I have, how could they not be happy with that? Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I think I've seen that one a lot too. Um, there's another big one is a cultural empathy gap regarding gender. And this, this is like we talked about that growing up as a person of a certain gender or growing up as someone who has changed that later in life or who's never felt at home in that one, that all of those things change your biases because you've learned the world a certain way. You've learned that the world works a certain way for you. And it's easy to ignore the fact that that might not work that same way for someone else. And we just did, you know, our whole episode about gender a couple weeks ago. Uh, but as an example of this is, um, as a man, if I'm uh, dating a woman and I'm interacting with a woman, I might assume that she feels as empowered as I would feel to tell me what she wants and she doesn't want. Whereas in reality, she might, from her experiences, not feel that that's a safe thing that she can do. And so in my mind, it's like I'm interpreting her communication one way, whereas to her, it's a very, very different experience. And this is a really good example of one that a lot of people are just entirely blind to, right? I definitely was as well, that this is something that you have to sort of learn that you're not seeing things. You have to learn that you're not able to understand the way the world works for everybody else. Uh, and it's not just something you're born with. And it's not, like we said, you can't avoid these things. Like you can't avoid having these biases. But by learning that you have them, you can do better to communicate better with other people, make them feel better, you know, which in turn makes all of your relationships better. And this is one I definitely wish that I had learned a, a long time ago. Yeah. 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 And there are ways to work around all of this. Um, and one of them is exactly what Jace just said, is that empathy is really something that you can develop over time. Um, I know within <laughs> within certain relationships that I've had, it's something that I've had to stop and tell myself, like, hey, you know, you're very upset right now. You may be really stubborn right now about, like, what you're feeling and that that's the truth and that that's all that matters and that the other person is just dead wrong. But if you take a moment to really stop and look at what they are potentially going through as well, then it, it might offer, at the very least, some perspective and push you into having empathy for them in addition to yourself. Because I think that that's really important. Otherwise, we just get stuck in this never-ending cycle of being like, I'm fucking right. Fuck <laughs> you. We're done. <laughs> Um, mm -hmm. and then in, in it, just to go along with that, you can imagine a time where you were in your partner's shoes or you felt similar emotions to what your partner seems to be experiencing in that moment. So again, like, you know, if, if the tables were turned in a previous, um, fight or a previous like confrontation, you can remember that time and say like, Hey, I've been there. I need to remember that and and give my partner maybe a little bit of the benefit of the doubt in this moment. I think the most important thing here to acknowledge is just that, is the fact that you can develop empathy if you want to, and if you want to put like the time and effort into it. And 
honestly, if you do, it's probably going to make your relationships better in general, really. Um, uh, another way to help develop empathy is to do um, compassion training or, or some kind of like metta or loving kindness meditation. And I know this is definitely going down the route of being more woo woo, um, but like loving kindness meditation and compassion meditation is something that actually has been studied. It's not just like, oh, this sounds like a nice thing, so let's do it. <laughs> like it has been studied multiple times and found that it does yield a difference in the way that people treat other people. Um, there was a specific study where, uh, you know, they compared it with a different group of individuals who received memory training instead of compassion training, but the individuals who got the compassion training were more likely to help out a stranger, for instance. Um, so it actually does make a difference. I know in my own life and meditation practice that being able to do some kind of loving kindness meditation uh, not just toward myself, but specifically towards someone that I'm having a difficult time with. And whether that's someone who like hurt me really, really badly and like I never want to talk to the, them again, or if it's just like my partner who I'm like arguing with about the dishes on that particular day, you know, being able to... <laughs> Emily's pointing at Jace right now for those of you who aren't watching the YouTube video. Just um, because, you know, he is <laughs> quite literally the dishwasher Nazi. Not, I don't know about literally, literally, but <laughs> figuratively, I mean, you do have some opinions about dishwashing. I have strong he opinions about dishwashers. Like yes, he loves his dishwasher. Anyway, to bring it back around, <laughs> um, but even being able to do that when you're in the course of an argument with a partner can. Uh, it really can work wonders. Um, and it doesn't mean that you're automatically just going to like roll over and be like, oh, they're right and I'm wrong. But it's still being able to come to the discussion from a more constructive and compassionate place rather than a combative place. Yeah, I did that recently. I, I was having a bad fight with my partner and <laughs> I kind of, I talked with my mother and she was like, listen, like maybe just look at this from his standpoint and maybe just say you're sorry and be like, hey, I hear you, I I understand you, like, I know what you're going through in this moment. And it was amazing, like, the difference in the way in which he approached me after that, just being being acknowledged and accepted. And I was like, fuck, I should listen to my mother more often. <laughs> <laughs> well, actually, you know, some of the best advice I got was actually, uh, surprise, surprise, in a meditation class with Jessica Graham, where she was also talking about arguing with her partner, um... And for her, it was about like in the moment, even though she was feeling upset, still being able to see her partner's pain mm. and to be able to recognize like, oh, he's hurting too. And like, I'm hurting too. And so I understand how that feels like. And from understanding that point, we can then talk and we can discuss and we can try to take care of each other as we negotiate rather than me seeing you as just the bad guy, you know? Right, assuming that because I'm hurting, you can't be, because I'm the one who has all the hurt here. Right, yeah. right, yeah. So <clears throat> with that, we're going to move on to our next cognitive bias here, which is the halo effect or the horn effect. Uh, and this is obviously a halo coming from angels and a horn like a devil. So here, what we're doing is we're taking one attribute of someone and then extrapolating everything else about that person from that one thing. So this, you know, this is the bias that's behind things like people assuming that attractive people are also good people or skilled people, more skilled at their jobs. I was just going to say, yeah, exactly. All those quarterbacks. 
Sure. Yeah. It can also lead us uh, just to looking at people as black and white, assuming that, well, because someone did this thing, they must be all bad. Or because they did this thing, they must be all good. So if they do something bad, that must have been out of character. So we're not going to judge them for that. That on, on either side, you can you can look at something that way and start to box someone in to just one role. And this happens, you know, we do it with celebrities, we do it with politicians, um, as well as with our friends or a lot of times with our friends' partners, they're an easy one to put this mm. onto because they've maybe <laughs> done just one thing and now we've mm. decided that they're all good or all bad. Um, so a way that this shows up in relationships, and this is a topic that we talk about a lot, is NRE, is new relationship energy, is that because I'm so excited about something about this person, maybe it's I'm so excited that I finally found someone who likes me. Maybe it's that I'm so excited because I finally found someone I have good sexual chemistry with, or I found someone who I have these things in common with that I never thought I would find with anybody, stuff like this, that because of that, we can easily be biased into thinking that they're great and completely ignoring putting on those blinders like we talked about with confirmation bias, completely being blind to potentially very destructive things or at the very least stuff that's like or well some bed re- red flags I think. yeah this isn't great yeah. or even just yellow flags where it's not like a red flag like stay away from this person but a yellow flag like maybe don't sign a lease with this person i think they call those pink flags these days is that we're talking the... about soccer no no we're not talking There's about pink soccer. Flags and soccer i can <laughs> tell you that much yellow flag and soccer yes but no i think in the like relationship advice sphere uh people call it pink flags these days oh, interesting that's interesting i feel I like know that i would have a hard time with that Tell i think why. because you love the color pink i do love the color pink first of all but i do i do like the color pink and so i am <laughs> always like a little bit hesitant to use the color. pink flag thing um yeah. but also i will say though that my two favorite colors are pink and yellow so either way mm. the flags are, <laughs> are in that territory no so actually you're like just a power ranger yeah exactly uh, you're the lady power rangers i am both of them yes uh is that in japan that pink is used for adult things you know how like yes, in english we true. might say we don't really say it anymore but our parents might have said like oh that's kind of a blue comment or like this sort of a blue uh, theme to mean it's like a little bit adult, a little bit, you know, not racy. for polite company. That in yeah. Japan, it's pink. That's the one they use yeah, for that sort of true. thing. And so I think for me, the pink flag, I can't, I can't not think about something sexual. If you're talking about it in terms of a relationship, to me, that's going to be like a pink flag would be like some sexual, sexual problem flag. or something. Like, like a sexual that. good thing or a sexual bad thing? Either one. I don't know. That's why I would be confused and I don't like it. <laughs> okay moving on (laughs) moving on um so another way that this cognitive bias can show up in a relationship is that you're you're potentially going to judge uh your dating partner based solely on their appearance Mm. so this can be the basis for a lot of body shaming fat shaming fat phobia stuff like that um just that you see a person and you think you know everything about them just based off of their appearance which is bullshit and (laughs) fucking awful something well, to think about it goes beyond that it's 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 you know because studies have shown specifically like 
often when people see someone who's overweight, that they then associate all these really unrelated character qualities to that person, as in they must be lazy, they must not be a good worker, they must not be as smart, you know, and that's, that is this halo effect slash horn effect, uh, 100% in play. It's not even just, you know, judging a book by its cover, it's, uh, you know, taking one aspect and then extrapolating it to every aspect about that person. Have you two uh, seen how they do some of those studies um, where what they do is they'll, you know, they'll show a type of person and then throw up a bunch of words on the screen and you have to pick them or say like, yes or no, whether you think that word applies to that person. Mm-hmm. And they do it very quickly so that people don't have time to, to counteract and be it, like, right? Ooh, oh, that's wow. the wrong thing to say. And these studies, you know, show things like the fact that racism, racism or sexism. Yeah, I was going to say, I know they've done that with like skin color. Right. Yeah. Is, is yeah. very much you know, it's, it's in us, it's a bias that we have. Um, and it varies depending on the culture you grew up, like how mixed your culture was when you were growing up in terms of race. Mm. Um, but, uh, what's interesting about it though, in the context of this conversation is that it's not like you take that test to find out if you're a bad person or if you're racist or something like that, But it's to do that, like we're saying, is to uncover your biases so you can realize, Mm -hmm. oh, I've got that going on. Let me take some steps to counteract that to, you know, it's it's I feel like there's kind of this myth that whatever our like natural reactions to things are, are like our true selves. Mm -hmm. And the thing is that for the most part, we don't get to choose those, that those we just got based on the circumstances of our lives. But what we do with those biases are what matter. Those are who determine what kind of a person we are. Um, and so, yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. Um, another way that this comes up in relationships is when we can make the decision to stay with a partner who maybe makes us unhappy, but does have good behavior sometimes. Um, this is something we covered in the, in the science of happy relationships. This is, of course, also related to confirmation bias and to status quo bias, which is something that we'll get into later. Um, but it is this idea of, you know, maybe my partner's kind of being a jerk to me, but he does always make me dinner and like do all these great acts of service for me. And so I guess those things don't matter as much, or I think he's overall a good person um hmm. that's it's a big yeah, it topic it's to related to a lot of yeah. different once we've decided can think about relationships yeah yeah definitely no go ahead take it away <laughs> uh, sorry i was just gonna say on our next our next one on the list here is um making judgments about someone's character based on their relationship choice or their mm-hmm. sti status um, there have unfortunately been studies about both of those done showing right. that people will be more likely to think that polyamorous people or non-monogamous people are less likely to floss their teeth. That it's an entirely unrelated thing. Guilty as charged, though. So see, not guilty as charged. I, I will do. provide some empirical data to just, combat that. I'm I just talking about my teeth every single day. So well, we just did a study job. right here. Two out of three polyamorous <laughs> people floss their teeth, which I would say is more do, than most. Hey, <laughs> I didn't even have braces, and I have never had a okay, cut. So all I'm saying is, that's enough. Hey. But how many out of how many dentists are non-monogamous? Hmm. Uh, most hmm. of the ones that I've come across are married. <laughs> <laughs> but you don't that know. doesn't mean a thing yeah. you don't know um, you're right you don't know Good plan. Um, <laughs> um, but I, I haven't discussed that so <laughs> with w- them 
what I was saying is that, uh, yeah, there have been those studies showing that, you know, things entirely unrelated to relationship style will be associated just because that goes along with thinking that a person is less responsible or something like that. And then similarly with STI status, that people are much more likely to think of that person as selfish or as irresponsible or something like that uh, when even even when given an explanation that counteracts that, they'll ignore that, that confirmation bias thing. Um, so with these in mind, how do we get around this? How can we work around this bias? Yeah, I mean, really the best thing to do and the best way to work around this particular one is just to have an awareness of it, to realize like, hey, this is out there. This is ingrained within us. This is something for me to think about so that I don't make the mistake of just every time I see so-and-so or every time like I hear about a certain thing in a person that I automatically make an assumption about them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So definitely when you find yourself either making judgments on people, whether those are good or bad judgments, um, it can be really useful to try to back those up with data. And I mean, data sounds like a very obviously scientific word, but it doesn't have to be, <laughs> you know, like observing them with a clipboard for a certain amount of time. It can't just be like, well, this person rubs me the wrong way, but hey, actually, why is that? Like, have they done something? Have they said something? Uh, or is this just something that I'm extrapolating based on the way they look or what I saw them do once? Or maybe, you know, it's um, <laughs> just being able to kind of re-examine your assumptions around people. Um, I think this is a really fascinating exercise if you really want to get heady with it is to examine if you're on a dating app, who you're swiping left and right on and why. Yeah. And it doesn't, and I'm not telling you, you have to change what you're doing. Like, doesn't mean that what you're doing is wrong, but it can be really fascinating just to kind of take a step outside of yourself and just kind of examine based on this person's picture, why am I swiping them left or right? Like, what are the individual things there? Um, and what are the assumptions that I'm making about this person based on that? Um, it's really fascinating and yeah. potentially uncomfortable exercise, but have fun. Yeah. Uh, and then another one is to give your first impression a second chance. Give give your first impression a second impression. Give <laughs> give your second impression a first chance. I don't no, know. No, no, you're losing the thread. <laughs> <laughs> Just make another impression, maybe. Or think... <laughs> Don't let your first impression be the only impression. Right. And I think that ironically, this is one that is especially easy to fall into for people who think of themselves as good judges of character. Mm. Uh, because mm -hmm. usually those people do have a certain amount of skill at, uh, you know, picking up on subtleties of behavior or of body language or of word choice, things like that. They do tend to have a skill with that, but it can often lead to a sort of arrogance that will lead you to make snap judgments about people. And even if you happen to have a bad first impression of that person and every other thing they've done is good, those people uh, I've found are much more likely to stick with their first impression because they're like, no, but I'm a good judge of character and I didn't like them at the beginning. So that must be the truth. Um, mm. So just something to be aware of for those of you out there being like, Psh, that's not me. I'm a great judge of character. Just give it a second chance and see. And if the data backs it up, then great. You can be more confident in that decision and know that you gave them a second chance mm. and maybe mm. more than a second chance, but you know, you've actually given it some real thought. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. 
Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. For a long time now, we've been fans of AdamandEve.com for getting sex toys or lingerie or accessories, things like that. It's just a fantastic resource with a huge selection. And now, not only do we have a fantastic offer, but we also have a promo code that will work on adammail.com and evestoys.com, which are their site specifically for LGBTQ audiences. And our code is fantastic. It's 50% off of almost any item in the store and free discreet shipping when you use our code MULTI. Yes, we love adamandeve.com and have for years. They are our oldest and longest sponsor, and they just keep on giving great gifts to us and to our listeners. You can bring more pleasure and satisfaction into your bedroom by going to adamandeve.com, adammail.com, or evestoys.com and select any one item. It can be, you know, an adventurous new toy or anything you desire, something fun, something sexy, whatever sounds good. So just enter offer code MULTI at checkout and you'll get 50% off almost any item plus free shipping. That's MULTI, M-U-L-T-I at adamandeve.com, adammail.com or evestoys.com. This is an exclusive offer that is specific to this podcast and it's better than any offer that is currently available on their site. So again, use code MULTI to get you not just the 50% discount, but also the 100% free shipping. Code M-U-L-T-I. Okay, so this next one... This this one's a doozy. Give it to us. Really a doozy. I'll give it to you. This is called reactants. Um, some people categorize this just as a psychological phenomenon. Some people categorize it as a cognitive bias. Um, I wanted to include it in this episode because uh, I feel like I see it as a cognitive bias and I feel like I see it also come up in relationships a lot. So reactants is... To put it in really simple terms is the desire to do the opposite of what someone wants you to do so that you can prove your freedom of choice. So for instance, they actually did a study where they found that when people saw a sign that said, do not write on these walls under any circumstances, then people were much more likely to draw graffiti on the walls versus when they saw a sign that said, please don't write on these walls. And so the theory is the idea that the first sign that had the much harsher language, it imposes a much greater perceived threat to your freedom. Um, Mm. I'd imagine this particular cognitive bias, I feel like this might change depending on, of course, the context that you were raised in. It may change depending on your culture. I feel like people in the West and specifically Americans, I feel would be this seems like a very American thing. Um, the idea that like, right. if someone's, if someone's treading on my freedom of choice, even a tiny bit, I really want to lash out and, and get back. Um, a lot of parents will recognize this in their toddlers, but it's something that we don't grow out of in the toddler phase. It very much stays with us even when we're adults. Okay. So how does this show up in relationships? Um, it's when we impose something like a rule or we deliver an ultimatum to a partner, which is interesting because because I, I would think that like once you deliver an ultimatum, the partner may be like, shit, like I want to do the opposite of that. Or it's like setting themselves up for failure in a way because they it, it's like a rule 
that is meant to be broken. That's a lot of what we say about rules. It's like, yeah. these yeah. rules occur. There's a lot here. And they're just there because you may eventually break them. That's a problem. Well, okay. Something that I want to point out, though, if I go back to this original study about people defacing walls, is that it wasn't that they needed to have no rule whatsoever. It was just the wording of the rule yeah. was well, what changed yeah, people's behavior to it. An ultimatum yeah. or like a rule is generally like this definitive thing of like, you do this or else I will X, I right. will leave, you will be in big trouble, mister, or something. Right. Yeah, which yeah. makes us want to lash out or want to do the opposite or just yeah. show like, how dare you impose this thing on me because I right. I should, you know, be allowed to do what I want, damn it. Yes. Yeah, I'd even take it another step, too, that in that case where it says, you know, don't write on these walls under any circumstance or to think about a relationship is like you have to spend the night with me every night no matter what, that even if you do cooperate with that rule, you're sort of like, damn, I guess I have no choice. This is frustrating. I feel stifled, right? Whereas, like you said, the sign that says, please don't write on these walls could be similar, like, I'd prefer it if you would spend the night with me every night. Obviously, I understand that you might not, but I would prefer that. That Then if the person does it, they feel like, cool, I just helped someone out. They asked me to please do something. I didn't write on their wall. I've done them a favor now. <laughs> so in, in a way, I feel like that also, in addition to with the sign example, being more likely to have someone follow that or at least to have them consider it that then when they do they're going to feel better about it not that i think you should use this as a manipulation tool to try to you know sneakily enforce rules on your partners but well i'm glad i'm glad you brought that up that's actually something i didn't write down because something that did come up when i was researching reactants specifically is that naturally this leads a lot of people to think like oh well then reverse psychology right like mm. then i'll just tell you not what i want you to do and then maybe you'll do you know but but consistently people have found like at least in the literature that i was reading is that like reverse psychology is doesn't work. at best ethically ambiguous and morally questionable <laughs> um, and i would say debatably not very effective and debatably not very effective also yeah yeah, yeah. yeah. um so i just wanted to share my own experience with this because i feel like in my relationship experience, I've I've gotten some firsthand at seeing what like a low reactance agreement feels like versus a high reactance agreement mm. or rule feels mm. like. Um, so, for instance, like one of my partners, very early on in our relationship, he expressed he you know he expressed like you know to be honest, I'm really uncomfortable with the idea of you dating someone that I work with. But I'm also really hesitant to tell you that because I feel like in telling you that, that that just sets off like people want what they can't have. Um, and so, you know, that's a different way of expressing reactance, right? Is this idea of wanting what you can't have. Mm -hmm. um, for me, though, is kind of like just having that conversation doesn't spark in me like, oh, this is forbidden. So that means I immediately want to do it. You know, it was just kind of like, oh, okay, cool. Like, I know I understand that that's the way you feel. Um, yeah, it was him and, being, like, vulnerable in the moment to you yes, as opposed and, like, to and, giving you and, an ultimatum. Right, right. No, and we, it never went, like, there was no rule about, like, you can never do this. You can never, like, you can never go on a date with someone that I work with or you can never talk to them. It was just kind of like, oh, I'm kind of uncomfortable. And so if that ever came up, like, 
we just kind of need to like talk a lot and there'd be a lot of care and, you know, negotiation and stuff like that. Um, versus, so I would, I would see that as kind of like, I don't know, it's hard because it's not like we even came up with a specific agreement, but that seems like a low reaction situation to mm -hmm. me. Um, versus I've definitely been in very high reactant situations where a partner has been like, you cannot have any casual sex. Like I forbid you from having any casual sex. And then guess what? Me, a person who doesn't really go for that much casual sex anyway, suddenly the idea of casual <laughs> sex becomes a lot more appealing <laughs> um, because it's no longer about casual sex. Now it's tied up in my freedom of choice, mm -hmm. right? Was there um, a, a like thing that was issued to you? Like if you do X, Y will happen? Uh, oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. It I don't feel like bees was. need to have that as part of it. The, I, yeah, I don't think they need to have that as part of it. But yeah, but I, I think, well, as we'll kind of get into when we're talking about how to work around it, it's, it's, it comes down to language, I think, and intention to a certain extent. Yeah. Uh, so what can we do about this? How can we get around this? And essentially, we've talked about it already. But the basic principle is to show respect for other people and to reaffirm people's autonomy. And this comes up in the way you speak about things, possibly even the types of things you ask of other people. Um, this can also be things like asking questions, finding out what it is that someone else wants, what their desires are when working together to negotiate agreements or talk about your own preferences rather than it just being a one-way street of like, I'm going to tell you how this goes and then you're going to listen to me. I think that uh, TV shows often lead us astray in this because there's often that scene in TV shows and movies where finally the person comes along and it's like, look, this is how it is. And then everyone falls in line because they're the hero of the movie. When in reality, that's probably the least effective thing that they could do in that situation. Um, so uh, another thing is to be careful about this. Um, I guess to, to, I think it's also worth thinking about what it is that you are trying to impose on somebody else. That how important is it to you to take away someone else's autonomy? And I know people don't like to think about their agreements or their relationship rules that way, but that is what you're doing. Any kind of an agreement or a contract or a rule is giving away some autonomy, is giving away some choice in exchange for something else. And I would just say that in addition to changing your wording around that and trying to be more respectful, that if someone else is going to go along with something you want, they're going to do it because they want to do that for you. They want you to be happy. They want to improve that relationship. They're not doing it because you hold some power over them or because there's going to be some negative consequence. And if that is the reason they're doing it, that's not a very it's healthy not, relationship. Yeah, it's not good for... And yeah, it's, it's ultimately not, not going to be good for either of you. That even if that does get you what you want in the short term, that's not going to be good for you in the long term of your relationship. Well, so we move on to the next one. Yeah, let's move on to status quo bias. I'm sorry, status <laughs> quo bias. So this is the tendency to prefer that things stay the same. So it's similar to loss aversion bias. Um, so it's where people prefer to avoid losses instead of acquiring gains. So it's kind of a way to like stay in something or stay with something because the potential loss, you are less worried or you're more worried about the potential loss than the things that you may gain in losing said thing. Um, mm. So how this happens in relationships, 
We often prefer the familiar, so prefer staying together with someone, to the unfamiliar, which is potentially breaking up with someone, even if we're currently really unhappy with our partner. And this is, I mean, this is super common. Like, we all understand the idea that human beings fear change um, to an extreme degree. And, um, I mean, I think, at least in my line of work, this is how I've seen so many examples of someone who's been in a relationship for 20 years, but they've been miserable the entire time and unwilling to change the relationship or leave it. Like, I've seen people for instance, who've been in a monogamous relationship for 20 years and when they don't want to be monogamous, Mm -hmm. but it's scarier to leave than it is to stay. Or I've seen vice versa too, where someone's agreed to a non-monogamous relationship uh, thinking that it was going to be okay and it's not been okay. And then again, all this time passes by that they've just been miserable. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So how can we work around this one? I think for this, that one of the keys is to i guess is to sort of like we were talking about with some of the earlier ones is to actually uh write stuff down is to get some mm. perspective on it uh and a pros to, and cons list to as get it some were. data mm-hmm. yeah exactly mm-hmm. to actually get some data and look at what would that actually be like rather than just focusing on god the idea of something new or uncomfortable is is just so awful i can't even imagine it i'd rather just you know deal with this now um or potentially to focus on the fact that you might be losing more of the time you have on this earth being in an unhappy Mm. situation being miserable or being unfulfilled that i think it's easy for us to sort of delay our happiness assuming everything will get better someday right we're taught to think that about our jobs like work really hard and be miserable because eventually it'll be better and i think we do it with our relationships we do it with a lot of things in our lives um and so if you really start thinking about that it can help you to evaluate the choices that you're making do you want to stay in this relationship or do you not? Do you want to continue in this job or do you not? When you really start to think about this is your life, this is all the time you get, mm-hmm. right? That that while the discomfort of a change might be, you know, might be scary, if you can really let yourself realize how uncomfortable it is to spend a significant portion of your life in a situation that's not good for you, perhaps that can help tip the scales toward that. Um, or if you want to look at it from a more optimistic sort of way is instead to shift your focus more to what could be gained that perhaps you're afraid of the loss, right? You're, you're averse to losing these things or to losing your comfort or losing your status or something like that. But instead, if you can focus on like, what could be gained from this making a move to a relationship to to leave a relationship sooner or later means could mean a big improvement in your life. It could mean, mm-hmm. or changing your relationship style could be a big improvement in your life or letting you actually explore the stuff that you want to know about yourself to be able to, you know, have the kind of life that you want to have. So rather than focusing on the time you were losing, you could also focus on, oh my gosh, the sooner I start on this, the more of these experiences that I want to have I would be able to have and that also might be able to help counter this in favor of making the choice that you actually want to make for yourself and that's right for you instead of the one that you're not making out of fear Mm. Mm. that's kind of related to stuff i know that you've talked about jace about figuring out if you're a person who 
who's more motivated by avoiding pain versus if you're a person who's more motivated by going towards pleasure or positivity. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think if you can figure that out about yourself, that can also really help with this of knowing, do I need to change the perspective about how much pain I'm going to still endure if I stay in this situation? Or do I need to focus on how many good things could come about if I leave this sooner rather than later? Yeah, definitely. It will help you communicate with other people as well if you get a sense for what motivates them or just talking about both sides of that um, can help you to understand other people and maybe understand their decisions too. You might be like, like we were talking about before, it's like, God, I can't understand why a person would put up with this shitty thing. I can't even imagine how they would do that. But if you realize, oh, that's because... I'm very averse to pain, so I can't imagine that I'd be in that situation, but maybe they're mm-hmm. more drawn to pleasure and there's something that that relationship gets them that's keeping them there or something, right? Or it could be exactly the opposite of that. It could be that mm-hmm. they're so afraid of change and you're like, I, I'm more focused on what can I, you know, what improvements can I have? What can be next, right? That either way, and there's pros and cons to both. And we're not meaning to say that one is better than the other. Um, there are pros and cons to both. Um, but understanding that about yourself can be really helpful. Yeah. So let's move on to our last one. Um, This is the ideometer effect, or as Emily said it, the ideometer effect. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Or maybe it's ideometer effect. I don't know. It's it's something. Um, I read it as idea... Oh, I see. Ideometer. Yeah. But I was wrong. Ideometer. Ideometer. I'm gonna I'm gonna say ideometer just because that's what feels right to me. Um so the ideometer effect is often cited um when people want to debunk supernatural phenomena. So it's it's the idea that a suggestion or suggestibility can make us unconsciously move and act and feel in ways that support the suggestion. Um, To a certain extent, this is kind of the basis of hypnosis, right? Um, But this is also, you know, for instance, the idea that if you and your friends are playing with a Ouija board, which I don't know if anyone's played in a Ouija board in the last 40 years or not. (laughs) Um, But the idea is that even if all three of you truly believe that the Ouija board is a real thing and you're actually talking to spirits like... That's that suggestion of that is going to get you to unconsciously move the plank around, um, mm-hmm. even if you don't think that you're consciously doing it. Um, however, in your relationships, we're not talking about Ouija boards. Um, we're talking about <laughs> entirely different things. Yeah. In an interpersonal context, it refers to the fact that our thoughts can make us feel real emotions. Um, so as much as I hate Stanislavski, um, I'm sorry, not so I much. I kind of hate Stanislavski, too. No, yeah. I, well, and. And actually, later on, all of this stuff was debunked. Like, he he himself was like, this is a crock of horse shit. Like, I don't, I'm not okay with this because um, it's harmful to people to, like, well, but, relive okay, but, things over and over to, like, produce an emotion. Yeah. Yes. yes. But that Correct. is the idea that we're, te- that we're talking about, um, that an actor might, like, envision a terrible scenario, such as the death of a loved one, um, in order to make themselves cry on cue. And so activities like such as cataloging what you're grateful for can have a separate profound positive impact. So that I am all for the other (laughs) way of like constantly going to an emotion or going to a thing that, you know, will make you upset or cry that can, you know, over time make that thing uh, 
not as effective and not as good in acting at least. So how does this one show up in our relationships? Well, uh, I'd say this one shows up all over the place in our lives. Uh, I think it also has a pretty strong relationship to confirmation bias, right? Mm -hmm. Is that, um, but this one's a little bit about our own actions being determined by some beliefs rather than our perceptions of the outside world. Um, But this one is really important when it comes to things like feeling insecure or feeling jealous um, that are regardless of whether our partner's actions are ethical or not, or whether they were being nice or not, this could inspire a negative thought about ourselves, which in turn generates negative emotions, which in turn leads us to do more things that cause us to then feel more negative about ourselves, which then, you know, see what I mean? We get caught in this cycle of, of, you know, getting reminded of some insecurity or some thought we have or some belief we have, whether it's good or bad, and then we reinforce it. And then that just makes that stronger and stronger. And it's hard to get out of. Mm-hmm. So ways to work around this. I mean, like Jace was saying, this shows up everywhere in our lives that our thoughts produce emotions, whether they're positive, negative, pleasant, unpleasant, whatever. Um, So right now I'm in the middle of doing some CBT training, like cognitive behavioral therapy training. Um, When I read that initially, I thought it said CBD and I was like, yeah. I'm not getting high. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm in Singapore right now and they would throw me out or maybe execute me. I don't know, possibly, but we're not going to get into that right now. Um, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy. And it's so interesting, actually, as I continue to study CBT, because it's actually very similar to a lot of, um, actually, I think a lot of Eastern thought and Buddhist thought around uh, psychology, um, which is kind of just acknowledging that external stimuli can cause a thought in your brain, and then a thought can then produce an emotion, and then that can start that feedback loop. So it could be something like, something as simple as just like flicking through your social media and Mm. seeing someone that you think looks more attractive than you. And like, you see their picture, you have a thought of like, I'm unattractive. And then that produces that. Yeah. That produces this negative emotion of like, well, I feel like crap and I feel unworthy and I feel unlovable. And then over time, those start to build up your worldview and your view of yourself. Um, Where it's like your friend uploading that picture uh, wasn't meant for the purpose of making you hate yourself, right? Um, but that's what's happened kind of because your thoughts have produced this negative emotion within you. Um, so I think even just, again, this is another one of those where it's like even having an awareness of it can be so helpful in helping you to get around it. Um, you know, reading, like researching into things like cognitive behavioral therapy or similar traditions or similar, you know, um, modalities can be really helpful in getting you to kind of examine your own thought processes, um, processes, and, Mm -hmm. you know, again, learning kind of how to get around them so that they don't totally sabotage you. Yeah. And, uh, this one, if, if, if I can take my turn to be a little bit woo woo about it too, please do. this one I think comes up a lot in our self-talk as well. Um, is the kind of words that we use to describe ourselves to other people or just to ourselves in our heads. Um, And an example of this one is uh, something that was suggested to me years ago about um, if you feel like you're someone who's bad at remembering names. So this is something that I have struggled with all my life. Like I'm just remembering names is 
more difficult for me than it seems to be for someone else like Emily, for example, who's really good at that. Well, I'm just good at that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Positive self-love here. And so what what I used to do was, you know, just in polite conversation, it's like, oh, sorry, I'm bad at names. I forgot your name or like, I might not remember that, right? You hear people say this, it kind of just gets worked into conversations like, oh, sorry, I'm bad at names. And a number of years ago, I decided that I wanted to change that narrative about myself. Um, And instead to, you know, if I don't remember a name, be like, sorry, you know, I'm, I'm working on it. Sorry that I didn't remember that. Or like, I'm going to do my best to remember your name. Something like that is still Mm. saying the same thing. I'm not saying, I'm not like the secreting it and just being like, I'm great (laughs) at remembering names. And then I'm just lying to everybody. Uh, But instead changing my wording around it. And I did find that not only has it, I think that it has made me better at remembering names. And I don't want to say that like it somehow magically made me better at, at remembering people's names just by saying I am. But because by not saying I'm going to fail, I'm actually going to try to remember it. I found that that has made a subtle difference in the way that I feel about it. And also when I do remember names, I feel a little bit more like, hell yeah, that's right. You know, I am improving on <laughs> this. Job, it's Jace. got me to focus more on that too. Uh, so that's a kind of a woo-woo example there. Um, another example is jur- journaling, which is something I'm a big fan of. And I feel like I talk about a lot on this show is just a way of getting those thoughts out of your head, is getting yourself out from those feedback loops so you can actually get it down on paper and see it. Um, I've always been a big proponent of actually writing it down with a pen on paper, although recently I have found a journaling app that I like on my phone that I've been doing, and I do experience the same benefits from that as I do from paper journaling. Uh, But you know, whatever works for you, whatever's gonna get you to actually do it is the most important thing. Mm. I found with the journaling thing, um, what's been really useful for me recently is if like a partner does something that upsets me or if something happens in my life that upsets me or something's disappointing and if I'm having a hard time shaking it, that if I start journaling out my thoughts, but specifically coming to it with the question of um, what does this mean about you? Because Mm -hmm. I think those are the kind of thoughts that end up being the most upsetting that we don't even realize that we maybe don't even hear, you know, the idea of like, oh, this opportunity fell through and I'm really disappointed about Mm -hmm. it. And I'm upset because I think what it means about me is that I'm unworthy or that no one's interested in me or that I'm never going to be successful. And being able to catch those kind of thoughts about your own value and write them out can be so useful because often when you write them out, you can see how ridiculous they are. Mm -hmm. Um, But it also gives you opportunities to then look at those thoughts and to analyze them and to come up with uh, examples to the contrary. You know, if it's, oh, I'm never going to be successful, it's an opportunity to be like, well, no, actually I've, I've been successful in this arena and that arena and I'm very happy over here. You know, being able to drill down to those particular nasty thoughts um, during your writing, I think can be so effective in getting you to bounce back as it were. I'm going to start doing that. That's great. <laughs> I like that very much. <laughs> well, report back. Tell us how it goes. Yeah. Oh, God. I'm terrible at journaling and terrible at practicing things. So I know. Sorry, I just did it. Fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I'm. You're working on it. Working on You're it. Working on it. Gonna yeah. work on it. Okay. <laughs> um, and on that note, in this cognitive bias, you can actually use it to your advantage. So again, like we talked about, if, if you're feeling down, um, do some gratitude or self-love exercises to create more positive feelings in your body. 
and mm-hmm. just more more positive self love, uh, just in your in yourself and in in your heart. Because if you tell yourself something, you know you may start to believe it. So that's pretty cool. And it could be with the gratitude or the self love thing, or the or the generating positive feelings. It doesn't necessarily have to be self-love or just to saying good things to yourself, even though that's very good. It could just be thinking of something that makes you feel good Mm. or makes you feel unconditionally positive, like Mm. a person or an animal. Pets are great for that. Of just (laughs) thinking about a pet that just generates positive emotions. And the funny thing is like, I've gotten some, like sometimes people will criticize this and be like, that feels very fake, you know, just to kind of you know, in this very fake way, make yourself feel good. But it's, you know, it's about as fake as the way you make yourself feel bad um, <laughs> yeah, when you think negative thoughts too. So, so all kind of in the same basket there. Yeah. yeah. So definitely grab a pet because they're, they're <laughs> wonderful. That's what they're there for. And on that note, in conclusion, the best way to get out of your cognitive bias is grab a pet. <laughs> <laughs> That's there. I there have you go. too. I love them. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay. Well, that was awesome. Hope you learned something. Yeah, gosh, I feel like, yeah, we always just like, this is just scratching the surface of so Mm -hmm. many cognitive biases. If you want to find more, if you really want to spend an afternoon questioning reality, just Google cognitive biases and start reading and it'll be great. Yeah. Yeah. The greatest. Okay. So if you'd like to have your question or comment played on the show, you can call 678-M-U-L-T-I-05. And leave us a voicemail, or you can send us an audio message at the Multiamory Facebook page. You can also email us at info at multiamory.com, or send us a message on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. To support our show and join our private Facebook community, go to patreon.com slash multiamory. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio. Our social media wizard is Will McMillan. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page at multiamory.com. You've worked hard for what you have. Your money, your assets, your 401k, and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.